So today we're just going to continue in this series called Journey to the Cross, and we're just talking about our relationship with Jesus, and we're talking about the heart that Jesus has for all of us. And I think a lot of times that when we read the Bible, that there's parts of the Bible that we might have read it over and over, but we don't understand the full, full significance of what Jesus is saying to us in his word. I think one of those passages is in John 15, where Jesus calls his followers his friends. I think sometimes we don't understand that significant, what it means when Jesus says to his followers, you are my friend. That's pretty significant, and it's life-changing, and I want us to really just, just look at the words of Jesus when he calls his followers his friends. And I want to ask you the question, too, of have you really understood Jesus to be your friend? And do you really know what it means for Jesus to be your friend? And it's almost to say, like, have you accepted Jesus as your friend? Have you received the friendship that he offers to each of us? Because to be honest with you, I think for many years of my walk with Christ, I didn't understand the significance of what it means to have Jesus as your friend. I mean, I understood him as Lord, I understood him as Savior, I understood him as Son of God, and that's all great. But I didn't understand this compassionate part of Jesus that says, I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. And so I want to really dive into that today because it's a beautiful, the significance of what it means for Jesus to be our friend. See, I think sometimes when we talk about Jesus as your friend, I think we've seen some abuses of it in the church where we just kind of think, well, Jesus is just my buddy. He's just, uh, he just hangs out with me, but he's not one we don't see the holiness of God when we kind of downplay the elevation of what it means to be a friend. But I want to talk today about John 15 and how we see that when Jesus is your friend, he actually lifts you up to his level. It's not just that Jesus comes down to our level and hangs out at our level, but he lifts us up and he elevates us out of our situation. And it's beautiful to see because what Lent is about, it's about repentance. It's about drawing closer to God. But I think in Lent, sometimes we have to remember that we draw closer to God because of God's love and kindness for us. Paul says it well in Romans 2, verse 4. He says that God's kindness leads us to repentance, that God's kindness turns us from our sins. And so I want to continue to talk today about what does it mean that Jesus is kind? And how do we see Jesus' kindness as it leads us to turn away from our sins? Because at the core of it, Lent is another invitation. It's another gift from God to turn away from your sins. I think it would be fair to say that really salvation is understanding God's kindness. Under salvation is kind of receiving and understanding God's kindness. And in return, you say, I want to follow Jesus. Because he is so kind, I want to make sure that I walk with him. And I want to make sure there's nothing that separates my relationship with him. Because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's actually God's kindness that gives us the gift of Lent. And if you're participating in Lent, it's because you do it because of God's kindness. I think sometimes it's easy to look at Lent and, and think it's kind of good, it's all about me. Even a little bit narcissistic, it's about me, but it's really about the gift that God's saying, I'm going to show you so much kindness that you want to repent. I love that. I love that about the kindness of God, that he gets us to do something that we naturally wouldn't do on our own. And so as we get further into Lent, I want us to just really understand this kindness of God, this compassion of Jesus in his heart towards each of us. Because at the end of the day, all that sin is, a sin is a separator. 
Sin is always working really hard to separate our relationship with Jesus. And God in his kindness comes back and says, I want to break any separation that you have with me. Our sin is nothing more than a cheap substitute for a relationship with God. I want to read to you a quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton, a theologian that died in the early 1930s. He says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I think sometimes we read that and think, no, no, that's not right. That's not what that man's knocking on that door for. We know what he's really looking for. But the truth is, what that man is really looking for is he's looking for connection. He's looking for relationship. He's looking for significance. He's looking for stability. He's looking for encouragement. He's looking for comfort. He's looking to be vulnerable. But he's looking in the wrong place. See, God has created each of us with needs and desires and wants and expectations. And God's plan that we would find all of our needs met in him. But we know what happened when sin entered the Garden of Eden. Suddenly Adam and Eve were distracted and thought, maybe I could find what only God gives me in some place else. And we just continue to do that. I think all of us are guilty of knocking on doors that we have no right to be standing in front of that door when Jesus says, no, I want to meet every single one of those needs that you have. And one of the greatest needs that each of us has is a friend. We all need friends. And Jesus says in his word, I want to be your friend. I think we all understand the significance of having a friend and the importance of having a friend. I think we all understand the security that comes from having a friend. And I think we all desire to have friendships where you can be open and honest and vulnerable, that you can share your feelings, you can share your joys, your happiness, but also your sorrows. You know, think about it. If those of you are parents, you know, when the first time you send your kids to school, your biggest, biggest concern is, are they going to have friends? We want our kids to have friends. I mean, oftentimes if a person invites us to go someplace, the first thing we say is, well, who's going to be there? Because we know the security that comes from being around people that are your friends or that will love you and encourage you. And we often also know that sometimes the people that need friends the most have no friends. And that's why in Matthew 11, it's such a powerful scripture, Matthew eleven nineteen that shows the heart of Christ, where Jesus has been accused by his critics of being friends with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus steps forward and basically says, I'm guilty as charged. And that shows while the accusers were using that as something against Jesus, we read that and we say that scripture is beautiful because Jesus has a heart for the tax collectors and the sinners. That Jesus has a heart for the people that are most desperate. Jesus has a heart for the people that need him the most. And that's such a comforting passage because we see in there that Jesus' heart for us is not based on what we can do for him or what we can give for him, but his heart for us is based on the great needs that we have. And we see over and over in the situations in the, the New Testament, the Gospels, how Jesus would befriend people that need it the most. 
that compassion that Jesus would reach out to people that everybody else wanted to overlook. That's comforting because Jesus sees our needs and he's drawn towards us. I want to talk about friendship today, but I think sometimes we have a hard time understanding friendship in the, the culture of the United States. I love our country. I'm not bashing on our country, but in America, our culture is often based on independence. It's based on independence and it's based on individualism. And when you're really independent and you're really individual, those are two things that don't necessarily work well with friendship. Because friendship is admitting that you need somebody else, that you can't do it on your own, that you need someone to process life with, that you need someone to encourage you or to comfort you. And when you're really individualistic or you really want your independence, it's hard to make friends. Some of you might remember back in 1995, Robert Putnam came out with a book called Bowling Alone. It was a pretty popular book in 1995 because he was analyzing the trend in American culture to see how back, you know, 30 years prior to 1995, bowling leagues were a big part of American culture. You would go to a bowling alley any night of the week and there would be a lot of bowling leagues going on. But now in 1995, he writes a book and says, a lot of people are bowling alone. You could go to a bowling alley during the middle of the week and at one time you could have never got a lane and suddenly there's a lot of empty lanes. We've just seen that a decline in culture of social groups just, just over the years even dwindling down. People aren't as part of a community. And that's interesting. That's 1995 before everybody had a cell phone or I don't even think smartphones were invented yet. And you see a decline in social, uh, social gatherings. So Robert Putnam, in his recent work, he now talks about the decline in even friendships in the United States. He says that 40% of Americans have zero to one close friends. 40% of Americans have zero to one friend in their life. And we're talking a friend that they could be open and honest or vulnerable with, or that they could share life together. Other researchers will show you that the average American has 1.8 friends. And that's down from 3.8 friends 10 years ago. We consistently see a decline in friendships in our country to the point where a lot of people are referring to we are having an epidemic of loneliness because people in our world and our society don't have friends or community to process life with. And when you don't have the friend or you don't understand Jesus is your friend, you start knocking on the doors of places that you don't want to enter. Because loneliness is, well, it leads to a lot of other problems. Some research will show you that people that go through difficult situations alone are more at risk for post-traumatic stress. That people that go through hard situations, when they go through it with community or group of friends, the after effects of the trauma are much less some of you that are listening to me might say, I feel like I might be part of that culture of loneliness. But some of you might be listening to me say, I think I'm part of that 40%. And that's a hard place to be. And we'll pray for you. But I want you to pay close attention to this message today. And listen to the words of Jesus that he says to his followers, you are my friends. 
And do you understand the significance of maybe your friend group is small and needs to grow? But if you understand the fact that Jesus is your friend, I think it's going to be life-changing for all of us. So let's read John 15, verse 12 through 17 together. Well, I'll read it. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servant, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I pointed you that you should bear fruit, and your fruit should abide, so that, what if, so that whatever you ask the Father, in my name he may give to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. There's a lot that's going on in this little section of Scripture. I want to just remind you when this is happening. This is Thursday night, the day before Jesus is going to die on the cross. And Jesus is with his disciples for one last time together. And they're going to celebrate the Passover meal today, together. And in John chapter 13, that's where the disciples, they all gather together in this upper room, and they're going to have this meal together. And the very first thing that John chapter 13 verse 1 says, it says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So this is the setup for this last dinner that they're going to have together. And the Bible says that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. I think sometimes we read to the very end and we just think it's talking about to the end of their life or until they get into heaven and for eternity. But John MacArthur points out in one of his commentaries, yes, while it does mean a time, but it also means that Jesus loved them to the max. It means Jesus loved them to the maximum ability that he had to love them. And we know that God is without limits. And so what the scripture is saying is that the love that Jesus showed to his disciples is the maximum amount of love that they could ever experience in their entire life. And by extension, you and I who are followers of Jesus experience that same love from God. That there is no more love that those disciples could receive than they were receiving right at that very moment. And that's what the text is wanting us to see, is that there is no more love that each of us could experience. We receive the maximum love that God could give, and that's limitless. But sometimes I think it's in our own brains or our own experience that we don't fully understand that love that God has for us. Sometimes our hurts and pains and struggles in life, we don't really fully understand and appreciate that incredible amount of love that God has for us. And so when God says or Jesus says, you're my friend, I don't think we totally understand it. So I want to go through that section of scripture verse by verse and say, what is God saying in this verse? There's two things that we need to see. Number one, Jesus is showing us how he wants us to love other people, but he also wants us to see that he's showing us how he loves us. That's significant in these verses to see whatever he commands us to do. Well, the implication is he's already doing that for each of us. So in verse 12, it starts and says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I loved you. I think we read that and we say, 
I really can't do that. That seems pretty hard. Kind of like, I'll tap out right now. I am not going to love somebody as much as Christ loved because I'm kind of incapable of doing that. I know from my own experience. I know I'm kind of selfish and I'm not going to, I can say I'm going to try to do that, but how am I going to do that? So let's first define the word love here. The word love that's used here is the word agape. There are several different words for love in the Greek New Testament. The word here is agape. And this is a significant word. It's a word that's used often to talk about God's love for each of us. But the agape love is not a sappy, sentimental love that, that just happens naturally because you're emotional. Instead, agape love starts as a decision. It starts as a decision to love someone, and then it's followed up with a commitment to love that person, and then it's going to follow up with displaying that love through faithfulness or commitment. But agape love always starts with a decision and a commitment. And that's what separates it from the love that we think, well, I only love because I have a strong feeling or attraction or desire. Now, God says you're going to love somebody, but you're going to start, it's going to make a decision that you're going to make. I like what Don Carson says. He says, agape love is always shown by what it does. So it starts as a decision, but you'll know agape love by the actions. And the first thing I think the text wants us to see is that's how God loves us. And that's very comforting to me to know that God loves me because he's made a decision to love me and he's made a commitment to love me. And the love that God has for me is not going to be based on my behavior or lack of behavior or my emotions. It's going to be based on his commitment. And that's just all comforting for all of us. That God's made a decision to love us, and he's not going to stop doing that. And so in verse 13, it goes on, it says, Greater love has, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Well, I think we'd say, well, okay, this is just getting a little progressively, getting a little harder. Lay down your life for his friends. That that's, seems more, again, more than what I'm capable of doing. And we see Jesus is going to go to the cross the next day and display his love for his friends, and Jesus isn't going to send us to die on a cross for anyone, but he's, what he's saying is, will you make, will you make another person's needs put them above your own needs? Will you love someone and follow up with it by faithfulness? Will you follow up with a need for someone by giving them maybe your time or maybe giving them some of your energy or maybe even some of your money, whatever God would call you to do? But would you give to somebody and expect nothing in return is what this scripture is saying. And I think, again, we admit that's hard to do. I don't know if I naturally can do that on my own. So when it gets to verse 14, it says, if you are, let me start with this. Verse 14 says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Those are all three big requests from God. To love another person as God loves, to lay down your life for somebody else. And now he's saying, well, if you're my friends, you'll do as I command. And I think there's two ways to read that. You can read this verse to say, if you're my friends, you're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. Or you can read it to say, if you are my friends and you naturally abide in your relationship with me, 
you're just naturally going to be able to do what I've called you to do. It's not going to be that hard for you if I'm your friend and if you learn to abide in me. And that's why it's so important to understand that Jesus calls us friends and he wants to have a friendship with us. Because then we're able to do the things that he's called us to do without as much effort. I don't want us to look at that when Jesus says, if you are my friend, you'll do what I say, kind of like he's sitting back saying, well, prove it to me. Prove it to me that you love me. Prove it to me you're following me. Instead, it's an invitation that God's saying to us is, yeah, it's going to be hard on your own, but if you make me your friend, if you relate to me as your friend, you're going to be able to do things that you can't do. And so we go on to verse 15 where it says, No longer do I call you servant, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. See, Jesus called his followers his friends, and as I said earlier, that, that's hard because these disciples were used to referring to Jesus as Lord or Master or Rabbi. But in this relationship, Jesus is laying out to his followers, there'll be no secrets. He's saying to his followers, I want open communication. So Jesus is saying, I will tell you everything that the Father tells me to tell you. And in return, he expects the same. That the relationship that's going to be based on communication. And see, this is an invitation that Jesus makes to us as a friend that I think sometimes we fail to fully participate in. Where Jesus wants us to go to him and tell him everything, not just that we need, but everything that we're experiencing. He wants us to tell him about the burdens that we carry or the feelings that we have that lead us to knock on doors that we shouldn't go to. So I think sometimes when we see Jesus as a friend, we see what he's offering here. He's offering us an escape from doing things that we don't want to do. But we need to receive the fullness of what it means that Jesus is your friend. And then in verse 16, it goes on and says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. See, agape love is not going to come natural to anybody, any of us here. Making a commitment to put another person first, that's going to be hard to do because in our fallen nature, we're not capable of that. But notice what word is pointed out in verse 16 is the word abide. That you should abide in me. See, abide's kind of an older word that we don't use much in our culture. That means to remain or stay or to dwell. We don't use that word much in our culture, but if you read the book of John, you're going to find that's one of John's most favorite words. He talks over and over about abiding in Christ and what that means to abide in Christ. And a lot of times I think when we hear the word abide, we don't understand what it means, so we just kind of ignore it, and that's not good because there's such significance in understanding that word. So remember when Jesus, at the point, this is going on on Thursday night, and Jesus is about ready to go to the cross, and he knows that his disciples are going to struggle when he goes to the cross. And he knows after he goes to the cross that his disciples are going to have a hard time. So Jesus is recognizing the instability that his disciples will face. So he's doing everything that night to talk to them about love and about the love that he has for them. 
Jesus knows that if he is going to go to the cross and his disciples are going to survive, survive what happens, that they're going to have to understand the love Jesus has for them, but also the love that they're going to have for each other. So it's in this setting that we have John 15, where Jesus has this whole discourse on love and the meaning of love. In the beginning of John 15, Jesus talks about love and abiding by using the illustration of vine and branches. And I want us to close the message today by talking about the significance of what it means to be a vine and a branch. In the beginning of John 15, verse 1, when Jesus is with his disciples, he says to them, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. I think we understand that. Jesus is saying, okay, I'm the vine. If any of you have seen a vine, it's, a, it's where grapes grow from and a vine kind of grows all around the ground and it, it kind of, it's not one straight little vine, but it curves all around. Then off the vine would be branches, which in this illustration, we would become the branch. Then we are called to go and bear fruit. And verse 2 is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I like the way that James Montgomery Boyce explains this verse. I think this verse is such a beautiful verse to really understand because it's a visual understanding of the love that God has for us and understand what God does for us when he calls us his friends. I preached about this about a year ago in January, this illustration of what it means that we, this illustration means, and I hope that I communicate it clearly because I think it's a powerful verse to see what Jesus does for each of us. In verse 2 of chapter 15, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Sometimes we read that verse and I think we get a little confused because it just said, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And we read that and we quickly think, Man, does that mean if I do something wrong or I do something bad or that suddenly I'm removed from Christ? Is there some kind of consequence here that I'm just learning? That if maybe I don't follow Christ perfectly, that I'm in so much trouble that he's going to take me away? But we have to remember that Jesus at this time, he's trying to encourage his disciples. He's trying to show them how much love he has for them, but also at the same time balance that with encouraging them to help them to know that what they're going to go through is going to be hard and difficult and that they have a friend and a confidant in him. So is the scripture saying that if you don't behave well, that you're suddenly cut off? So James Montgomery Boyce, he, Boyce, he was a, a very well-known theologian that's very well-respected. He says that that translation is not wrong, but it just needs more information so you really understand it well. It's kind of like if you said the word love and said you need some explanation what kind of agape love versus the love you would have with your spouse. So James Montgomery says that you really need to understand deeper what that word means. He says in the Bible that that word for uh, takes away could also be translated as removed or cut off. In a lot of translations, they will say that removed or cut off, and it's just, it gives you that feeling of, oh no, I'm, I'm in trouble now. God's mad at me. He's going to remove me. But as uh, James Montgomery Boyce points out, that word also means to lift up. He says a better translation to give us more meaning. Again, the translation's not wrong, but to give it the full meaning, that verse should say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. 
Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he lifts up. So the question is, why does he have to lift me up? Or why does a person need to be elevated? See, we don't understand this, this whole John, John 15 vine and branches because we don't live in that, that uh, agricultural society that grew vines and grew grapes. We don't really understand that that well, but all the disciples that they're listening to Jesus at that night, they would have said, oh yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. Because one thing you know about vines is that they grow on the ground. And branches grow on the ground. And if the branch is bearing fruit, that fruit is going to sit on the ground. And fruit will never survive growing on, on the ground. Especially in that Israeli uh, climate. It's really warm during the days and really cold at night so that moisture would get on those grapes during the night and it'll stay on during the day and the fruit's going to get rotten. So the illustration here is that what God is going to do, he's going to come in and he's going to lift the vine and the branches off the ground. Because the only way that you can bear the fruit on the branches if the branches are lifted up off the ground. Because then they're not going to be subject to the rottenness and the mold that would happen when they're sitting on the ground. So the picture that this text is trying to, for us to see is that when Jesus is your friend, he comes into your situation and he lifts you up off the ground that Jesus comes and he lifts you up out of your situation so that you can go and bear fruit because you go back in the end of John 15 where he's telling you to love others put others first you're like I can't do that it's impossible for me to do that because uh, based on my own circumstance I'm not going to be able to do that but the text says but that's when Jesus comes in and says I'll lift you up so you can do what I'm calling you to do that's what Jesus does as a friend. He comes into our situation and he lifts us up off the ground so we can produce fruit. This friendship that we have with Jesus is not this pure buddy friendship. Instead, the friendship that we have with him is that he is our Lord and Savior and he comes into our life and he lifts us out of our circumstances so we can do what he's called us to do. And that's why in the text, he says, whatever you ask for in my name, I'll give to you. We've misused this text to think, well, I ask God for a car, I automatically get a car. But what God is saying in this text, anything that you need to do to abide in me, I will do for you. Anything I will do for you. So you feel right now that your friendship with Jesus isn't that good? Or you feel like, man, I feel a little disconnected from this vine that I'm supposed to be. Well, if you ask God, he will do whatever needs to be done for you. God will do anything for you so that you stay better connected to him. And that's why Lent is such a gift. Because it's God's kindness that comes to you and says, I'm going to show you anything that is prohibiting you from abiding in me. That's the beauty of what God does in this season. And then he ends it in verse 17 by saying, these things I command you so that you will love one another. 
Again, he goes back and reminds us, this is the goal, that you love other people. We want to love God, and we want to love other people. And we want to do it well. You know, to be a follower of Jesus, we want to be with Jesus. And we want to do the things that he did. But we're only going to do that when we become more and more like him. And in Luke 15, verse 1, it says about Jesus. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him. That's the heart that Jesus had. That sinners were drawn towards him. They were drawn towards him because they liked spending time with him. They were drawn to Jesus because they felt safe with Jesus. That's part of the goal of going through this Lenten season together, is that we abide in Christ, but also that we can reach people that don't know Christ, that we can more effectively be his ambassadors. I've closed the last two Sundays by saying I, I am praying for and I'm hoping for that we have revival in America. And I sure hope it comes. I sure hope it comes we can end, end this COVID season with big revival. And I'll keep praying every day that it happens. But in the process, we can be prepared for revival. That God would prepare our hearts and our lives so that when revival happens, that sinners will be drawn to Jesus because they see the love that we show to them as a church and a body and as a community. That's what I'm praying for. That as a church, we fully embrace the kindness that God has towards each of us. That we receive his kindness, we receive his friendship, and we want to participate in this Lenten season. So we can say, God, we don't want anything to separate us from you. See, this Lenten season is allowing us to connect with Christ in a deeper way just because he's showing us his kindness. There's so much going on in our culture right now. Of how do we respond to uh, racism? How do we respond to social justice issues? How do we be a church that promotes justice? You can go to the bookstore and you can read hundreds of books on this topic right now and sometimes you're like, I'm not really sure what to do. I think that's why we go back to John 15 and we say, well, we start with obeying God when he says love one another. That's the foundation of everything we're going to do to make an impact on society is to learn how to love other people. So we take Jesus very serious in John 15 when he says, I'm your friend and I'll lift you up out of any situation that you're in so that you can bear fruit. That's a pretty good promise. That's a pretty good promise. I'll lift you up out of any situation that you're in so that you can love other people. Let's receive the friendship that Jesus offers us today.
And let's ask him to help us to love other people well. I'm going to close in prayer, then our worship team will come up and lead us in a final song. God, we come before you and thank you that you have given us, indeed, everything that we need. That you've given us a Lord, you've given us a Savior, you've given us a Redeemer, you've given us a Counselor, you've given us a Prince of Peace, but also Jesus as our friend. Thank you for the security that comes from the imagery of having a friend. God, help us to receive the fullness and the benefit of having Jesus as our friend. God, I pray that each of us would totally experience what it means to receive your kindness. God, may your Holy Spirit work in each of our lives, Lord, so that we receive your kindness, that we receive your heart that you have towards us. Lord, lead us as a, as a church as we journey to the cross. Direct our steps. Open our eyes to any doors that we might be knocking on that we need to get away from. Help us to find our hope and our security and confidence in your Son. God, I thank you for this time together. Would you bless the people that are here and the people that are listening to me? Would you bless our families and our relationships? And God, would you bring a renewal to each of our lives as we are going through the season together? And God, we do pray together that you'd bring revival to our land, that you'd bring it to Michigan, that you'd bring it to the country, our country. God, help us as a people to turn from our sins and turn to you. Lord, we pray for the people in our city, in our state that don't know you. God, would you visit them with the truth and would you use us as your ambassadors to show them your love? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.